I'm calling my wife, telling them, listen, if anybody starts calling for money, tell them you don't know where your husband is. If I shout Welcome to the Must Follow podcast from Stock Twits. I'm your host, Sean McLaughlin. You can follow me on StockTwits at ChicagoSean. StockTwits is the leading social network for investors and traders. You can download our app on iOS or Android or visit us on the web at StockTwits.com. At StockTwits, we believe you don't need to be a Wall Street insider to make money. We believe real investors working together can gain a discernible edge. The Must Follow podcast introduces you to interesting members of the StockTwits community who are honing their craft on a daily basis. The reason traders lose money is because they look, they, they, they think something works 80% of the time, but then one doesn't work and they don't want to take that loss. Well, you told me it works 80% of the time. Why should I get out? Because this is the 20%, you dummy. Get out. Because then your you're, you're one bad trade, you know, if you do two bad trades out of 10, those two bad trades turn out to be worse than the eight that you did right next thing you know you turn a day trade into a swing trade into an investment you're getting 10 cues and 10 you know you're sitting on conference calls on a stock that you don't even know what they do next thing you own it for six months and you turn a 200 dollars loss into a five grand loss that's how people lose money it really always comes down to money management everybody's got something that works pretty well but it's really being stubborn about taking those losses which gets you in trouble and people just don't seem to realize you gotta take losses nobody's right all the time kenny glick is a real guy a trader's trader anybody who follows him on stock or watches his youtube videos knows that kenny wears his emotions on his sleeve he never shrinks away from having an opinion and he shows you what it's really like to be an active trader, warts and all. Kenny's journey to his first trading desk took a little bit of an unusual path. He first worked in television on the set of Saturday Night Live. It was a brief stint, which he explains. Then from there, he explored stand-up comedy. And while on stage, he was discovered by a stockbroker who thought, hey, your sense of humor might do well selling stocks. That landed Kenny on a desk in what commonly became known as a boiler room. Kenny's got some crazy stories about his time there that are too crazy to not be true. After getting fed up with this shady business, Kenny spoke to one of his friends who threw the idea out to him that, hey, why don't you start trading your own money? And the rest, as they say, is history. Now, as I mentioned, Kenny's a real guy and he gets real emotional. And as such, this conversation is not PG rated. If the occasional F-bomb makes you uncomfortable, well, then I'm going to apologize ahead of time but I think you'll find it totally worth it. I hope you enjoy. The last conversation we had, and when I saw you, when I told you the Dow would hit 20,000 by January uh, 20th of 2017, and the queues would be at 120, because so far, dead targets, right on target. You you nailed it, and you did call it, and when was that that we hung out? That was, uh, was that the spring? Uh, it was, all I know is the market went down for two weeks after I made that, after we spoke and I was like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You and I hung out in New York. Uh, I was in, I was there for some stock twits business and, uh, actually I think it might've been around, uh, in, in early December, I think right, yeah, we, December, we, 2015. Yeah. And then we got hammered in January and I wasn't looking too good there. <laughs> <laughs> we also got hammered that night, but that's a different story. Right on. I first discovered you, I want to say right around the flash crash. And you and I have talked about this when we've hung out in person in the past. One of the first things I ever saw was you, you used to do these videos, or you still do videos, uh, but there was a video of you sitting at your trading desk at home during or immediately after the flash crash. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know who you were. I knew nothing about you. I think this might've been the first video I ever saw of you. Somebody maybe shared it on Twitter or sent me an email. I, I wish I remember how it came across, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is I saw this video of you basically like everyone else going, what the hell just happened? Oh yeah. And, and you were sitting on some pretty meaty losses at the time and you were there without a shirt on. <laughs> As I am now. <laughs> Go, going crazy. Your kids are coming into the room. You're shooing them away saying daddy's, 
daddy's busy or something like that. Cause you were in full meltdown mode. And, and I was just like, Whoa, who is this guy? And wow, this guy's in it. So <laughs> let's, let's start right there, man. I want to talk about what happened to you on the flash crash and, and, and you know, t- t- walk me through that day and, and, and your experience of it. Well, I'm a big naked put seller. So, you know, I had a ton of naked puts on the queues. You know, I had some Akamai. Uh, you know, I don't I don't really sell naked puts on stocks that I'm not comfortable if I had to buy it, that I couldn't buy it. But I really was over my head on some naked queues. I think I've had about 270 or 370 out there, you know, floating around. And these were like, you know, five points out of the money, 10 points out of the money going out six months, some of them were at, you know, on leaps, you know, if I, if I think the queues are going up and I've, you know, I've done pretty well on the queues all this time. So, you know, when that started to happen after in the midst of the flash crash, what they did with the option prices, they all went to, you know, penny bid and they all went to like $50 on the offer. (laughs) So my account showed me the loss as if I had to cover all those naked puts at 50 bucks. So my account suddenly went from, you know, being up 18,000 to being down about 1.2 million. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second, this is, I, this can't be real. And my body just shut down. I broke out into the sweat. And next thing you know, I, I got to get my kids off the bus and I'm running outside and, and I'm like, you know, I'm freaking out. My kids can see the look on my face. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Get in the house. Hurry. I'm calling my wife. Telling them, listen, if anybody starts calling for money, tell them you don't know where your husband is. Because <laughs> there's no way we're giving them this money because this has got to be some sort of technical glitch and I'm not paying for this. Yeah, and- I mean, that, that, that's a crazy situation, right? I mean, you and I know we, we, we watch options prices. We watch stock prices. When, when an option all of a sudden goes no bid and just ridiculous offer, right. which is which is the market maker's way of telling you, look, we're not making any trades right now. Um, and that's fine. We understand that. But... The, the clerk at the margin desk, <laughs> on the other hand, is going to look at those spreads and, and those options prices are going to get marked to market at whatever they are. And if you're sitting on, uh, you know, you could be facing a huge margin call, which, you know, I mean, if, if they were to give you another day, let the market kind of settle, they'd find out that the situation is not as bad as it looks. But that must have been a pretty frightening situation for you to be in at that time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> You know, like I said, I wasn't going to no matter what was going to happen, I wasn't covering that loss because, uh, you know, I, I, I figured it had to be a technical glitch. And even even at, while it was crashing, I started doing the math and it wouldn't have been as bad. You know, the queues, I think, went down. I don't know what it was. I mean, it went down like 12 or 13 points or something like that. And in two or three minutes and, you know, some of the puts weren't even in theory, you know, if you got a hundred and five dollar put. And they were just at 115, 105 suddenly are, you know, you're, you're not, you know, feeling too good about it. But in theory, you're not really, it's just a paper loss at that point. You could still short the cues at 105 to offset the naked puts. But at that point, there was no trading, you know, and I, I just, I, I legitimately didn't know what to do. And I was just, you know, I was like, let me just make a video in a frothy sweat crying. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that was the most in it video I've ever seen. And when I, when I mean in it, I mean like you were in the thick of the, the hurricane. I mean, it was, I mean, it was the most emotional, most, emo, most real video I've ever seen a trader take. And I, you know, I was like, holy shit, man, kudos to this guy for putting himself out there. I mean, that's amazing. But it was like, you know, for a guy like me and for traders who were in that experience, like, man, that was like kind of must see theater. <laughs> so, sorry to objectify you like that. You no, know, talking about it now, I still remember the, 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 the tears welling up in my eyes. I was like, what am I going to do? Dude, I, I felt it, man. I'm looking at you and I'm like, damn, this guy's, this guy's in it, man. This is crazy. Well, you know, the crazy thing too is on that day, I mean, as fast as the flash got happened, maybe we should give a little background for some people who maybe weren't trading back in 2010 or haven't really heard what the flash crash is. But basically the, th- the, uh, the elevator pitch of the, th- of the flash crash was uh, in the afternoon on May 6th of 2010, a 
we haven't, I guess, the, 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 if, uh, hasn't really been determined exactly what caused the, the flash crash. The, the going theory is that somebody placed a large futures sell order uh, at some, you know, Midwestern uh, trading firm that uh, just all of a sudden triggered this cascade where stop orders were getting hit. And next thing you know, uh, the general indexes sold off something like what five percent in two minutes or something ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but the crazy thing is, is at the end of the day, uh, the markets bounced obviously, and we've only finished down like what two, maybe three percent of the day, which is big, but you know, <laughs> not as bad as it was. Right. Uh, it was the greatest relief rally of all time. Right. Yeah. And you know, coming and, and it should also be uh, pointed out that coming into the flash crash, if you remember, I mean, we were the market already was in a pretty steep decline that that had been going on for three or four days. Um, so, I mean, on a, in a lot of respects, it kind of looked like a capitulation sell-off on steroids. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But that was, uh, yeah, that was a crazy time, and. You know, th that brings up something that, that I was hoping to talk to you about, and that is uh, when you're in a situation like that, maybe not that extreme, but when you're in, you know, you're in a rut, you're, you're losing money left and right, you just can't seem to make any right decisions. How do you pull yourself out of, of, of that rut? Like, do you have any tricks or processes that you fall back on when you need to just kind of recenter yourself and get back focused and making money? Yeah, man. The, the, the real important thing is, you know, I've been doing this my whole life and, and I used to never want to leave the desk because I thought I would miss something. I never wanted to go on vacation because I thought I would miss something or something bad would happen. I was the same way, man. <laughs> yeah. And just like how you get out of a rut, you have to remember that tomorrow the market's going to be open and the same nonsense probably going to happen again. And you'll find another opportunity and you'll probably get right back on the horse. And, you know, as soon as you get back in the groove, then, you know, it starts it starts to click again. Pretty much it, it takes a while, you know, for instance, you know, I, you know, I was down on myself for, you know, I'm a, I'm a big shorter still because I've done really, I did really well back in the day shorting and I called, you know, the, the top of the market in 2000. I, I really had a good time in 2008 and, and you know, I didn't hold on to my Bear Stearns and my Lehman until the, to the, to the nitty gritty, but I did pretty well on the downside. So I've always been like fond of, sh of shorting but now you can't. But that Friday, I think it was two Fridays ago, we finally had a sell-off. And, you know, I said, all right, let me take some profits here because we're probably going to bounce and rally for the next six weeks like we always do. But <laughs> in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe this time will be different. The dumbest thing any trader could possibly say, well, this time it'll be different. This time it'll be different. And that's what gets you in trouble. But again, I, I held on to some shorts. I held some puts. You know, because, you know, I'm still long the queues from, you know, March of 2012. And, you know, but I like to trade against my position. So and what happened? They all went kablooey and the market rallied. And now we're at all time highs. And, you know, I wasted a lot of money just sitting with these, uh, you know, puts on the queues and, you know, a few short positions that I finally, you know, I wasn't going to go into the Fed short. So I decided to cover, which was a, a good move right now because it would have been a little bit worse today. But you know, the way to get back into it is just remember the next day there's going to be something else that if you see the setup, you'll make money on that. And for me, it was Clovis the other day. You know, this is a stock that, you know, this the drug, uh, the drug companies are all going crazy. Biotechs are having a monster run right now. And some of these companies, they, you know, this one Clovis in particular, this was a $140 stock or whatever, went down to 11. The drug didn't work. They were losing money. They're on the verge of bankruptcy, according to, you know, the 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 blockosphere. Next thing you know, the charts are telling a whole different story. 1750 suddenly, and then it's at 20. And I'm like, you know what? This might be a decent one to hang on to because the charts are telling you a different story from what the news headlines are telling you. Next thing you know, Clovis makes up for all the loss that I took on the uh, the puts and you know staying short. So it really comes down to if we if you have something that works, even if it works 80% of the time. 20% of the time you're going to lose money. You just have to manage those losses and realize that, you know, tomorrow could be a brand new fresh day and make it work for you. So, uh, all right. So that makes sense on, on a procedural level, but uh, on a day, let's say on a day like the flash crash or just a day where just nothing's worked for you. Market closes. It's 4 PM. You, you shut the computer down. You're like, I'm done with this. Is there a way that you kind of, wash that from your mind for the rest of the night? I mean, do, do you, 
do you have a process? Do you go home? Do you, do you go out work out? Do you go for a run? I mean, is there something that, that you like to do not market related that just kind of helps you get back to center? <laughs> I love to say that I go for a run or I work out. It's usually I walk down to the basement and I draw, I, I, I take out the kettle one and I put it on, <laughs> and I put it on the rocks and then I watch uh, Ray Donovan to try to forget about the day. <laughs> I'll, I'll go binge watch something I haven't seen in a while and uh, drink a couple of kettle ones. You know, I had a friend, I had a buddy that used to make fun of me. He's like, all right, man, you shouldn't, you shouldn't drink in the middle of the day. I used to go out to lunch. We'd have a couple of drinks and he'd always go to the gym. I'm like, yeah, well, that's your thing. I, uh, you know, I, I like to drink. <laughs> you want you want to work it out and sweat out your problems? Good for you. <laughs> I know. I wish, uh, <laughs> you know, I wish I had a better answer for you, but I'm just being straight with you. Okay. Okay. No, hey, everyone's got their thing, man. And whatever works, works. Uh, okay. So without getting into the actual nuts and bolts, but just kind of high level, it sounds like you're mo you're mostly a day trader slash swing trader you hold trades for i don't know i would imagine a couple days at most is that, does that sound right yeah lately you know what i've been doing is when i see a stock you know that i like and i'm uh let, let, for instance today on or the last couple of days i've been buying this uh, some other biotech stock this stock aria and today it showed some weakness when I started trading, it was really just, I was more of a portfolio manager. I was managing, you know, I got to a point where I did well on, on, in trading and then I was just sitting on stocks. So what I did was I would only short stocks that I owned because I knew that if I sold out of them, it's so much harder to sell out of a stock, you know, and then buy it right back when it starts to rally the next day when it's your long-term, quote-unquote, long-term holding. Mm -hmm. But so I separated my account into I, – I actually opened up three separate accounts, my day trading account, my swing trading account, and then my long-term holdings. So then what I was doing mostly for, for a while was just shorting stocks that I owned to offset the days when they were weak. For instance, on this Aria today, you know, it, it got up, you know, it, was, it had a little gap up and then started to roll over. So I shorted a little bit, you know, for my day trade, I made a little bit of money and now the stocks already come back. Because once you realize your personality, if you sell a stock, this is just me, I, I, it's probably the same way with other people. You sell a stock, you're obviously hoping it's going down because you're, you're out of it now. And then it gets to a point where you might want to buy it back. So if you sell a stock and it starts going up without you, you know, some people call it the revenge trade. You're like, I'm not letting this thing go up without me and you buy it right back. I found that I would get a little stubborn because I never wanted to buy something back that I just sold out of. So that's how I really actually became more of an active trader, you know, around my portfolio that I built, you know, after being a, after being a broker and got into trading. And then luckily, you know, around you know, March of 2000, I started thinking, you know what, this market's got to go, you know, down. I started re researching, you know, because I was, you know, like a typical day trader. We don't know what these companies do. So I started actually researching some of these stocks. And, you know, there was a couple of companies out there that were trading at valuations like almost as big as GE. And they had nine employees with no earnings <laughs> and maybe and maybe some revenue. And I was like, this cannot end well. The stock was $40, you know, eight months ago. It's trading at 800 now. This is not right. And I just sat there and I was taking a beating for a while. But, you know, once I, I dumped my portfolio and I stayed short all these, you know, garbage stocks and then they started tanking and, and it was a it was a good time for me. But, uh, well, it, I, I find it interesting that uh, that you had uh, that what you were doing was you had stocks in a long portfolio that you were bullish on. And then in a day trade account, you were actively shorting against them on weekdays. I mean, it, it sounds like you were hedging out your own emotional risks, <laughs> if you think yeah. about it. Yeah, I was I was the, the true hedge fund, you know. <laughs> I, I The funny thing about hedge funds, and this is what's funny because I know, you know a bunch of guys that run hedge funds and whatnot. Some are small, some are huge. But the, the idea of the hedge fund when I, you know, I've been doing this, I guess I've been, well, I've loved the market since the fifth grade, but, you know, actively doing anything. I became a broker, I think, 95. But um, when I learned about what a hedge fund was, it was such a novel idea. They were actively trading their fund to hedge against market downturns, opposed to your typical mutual fund where you're buying your mutual fund and your Keo or your, your Roth IRA and you would just hope if the market would go up. 
So the active hedge fund manager was actually trying to prevent losses. But nowadays, you know, I know hedge funds that and I have one guy. He's like, no, nah, we never short anything. Right. We, we own 20 stocks. We hope for the best. Yeah. I mean, a, a hedge fund in its true sense when they were first formed, I mean, perhaps I'm not 100 percent accurate on this, but it was my understanding that. It was basically, okay, we're going to put 100% of our portfolio on long stocks, the strongest stocks that we could find, and we're going to put 100% of our portfolio short stocks on the weakest stocks we could find. So you were on net, you were balanced. Right. Right? Is that, I mean, maybe that's oversimplifying it, but I mean, that seemed to be what the original intention was of hedge funds. And, and therefore, that's why they were called hedge funds, because they were hedged. Right. Classic. The classic definition. Yeah. But Man, now that's that's gone away. You, you'd think there'd be an opportunity out there for somebody to uh, to start up a, a brand new old school hedge fund. <laughs> right, the true hedge fund. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So hey, I'm interested in this. You, so you mentioned you were a stockbroker. That was kind of your first uh, entrance professionally into the markets. Is that right? Right. So you were doing that in '95. You started. Yeah, I, I think it was yeah '94, '95. I, I I made a big jump. I was in the television industry i was doing stand-up comedy and whoa uh, that's yeah. a, that's a surprise i'm saying that sarcastically <laughs> i was doing stand-up comedy i was i actually got, had an internship at saturday night live which i don't really like to i mean i've got some great stories but i was actually fired from saturday night live because uh you know i was i was a pa you know i wasn't i wasn't getting paid much but they would pay me for the uh these overnight sessions but Long story short, I, I answered the phone apparently with a funny voice. Saturday Night Live, can I help you? And, and the guy on the other line said, who the hell is this? I'm like, it's Kenny. Like, why'd you answer the phone like that? I'm like, like what? And the guy's like, don't be a, you know, he cursed at me. Whatever. I don't know if we can curse on your blog, on your, uh, your podcast here. But he's like, don't be an asshole. You know how you just answered the phone. And I was like, uh, no, really, I don't. And then next thing you know, his assistant came up to me. He's like, Jim told me that you better be out of the building when he gets here. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? I was like, you guys don't even pay me. You're firing me. I just work 72 hours straight. Cause I used to work on Friday nights when they would do the run throughs and they would do the filming of those fake commercials before oh, yeah. the show would start. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, worked on, I worked on Chia head and that's not yogurt. And, uh, couple of the other ones, there was the one, a cologne for dogs. And after they would be done filming it, I would run the videotapes to Broadway video for them to do the editing. And I would sit at the editing house and then run them back to Saturday Night Live for them to take a look at how it came out. And I was there one day, I, I slept there for basically three days. I would work from, you know, Thursday and I would, you know, then I would see the show on, on Saturday night, half, half asleep. You know, and then I got fired. But <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, uh, you and uh, you and Larry David have something in common. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it was fun. You know, I got to hug Phil Hartman. I was there when Adam Sandler first got there. He used to throw M&Ms at me and I'd catch him in my mouth. He was very impressed with my 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 uh, M&M skills. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and but then from there, I went to work for uh, John Stewart when it was called the John Stewart Show. Oh, wow. And yeah, you know, I was doing some stand up comedy at the time and I was doing the audience warm ups, you know, before the show would start, I would you know, just tell a few jokes to the audience, you know, keep them occupied before the show would start. And, um, you know, one night I was doing stand-up comedy in, in Brooklyn and somebody approached me at the end of the night, you know, wearing a suit. I'm, you know, immediately thinking this guy might be somebody because nobody wears a suit to a comedy club. And uh, he turned out to be a stockbroker. He's like, yeah, you're, you know, you're a funny guy. You could probably use your sense of humor to sell stocks. <laughs> I had some, you know, interest in the market at the time. So I was like, you know, I'm a broke kid living with my living with my mom at the time. Just got fired from my dream job, basically. And you know, then I was working at the John Stewart show, which was all right. Uh, and I was like, cool. Next thing you know, I'm hightailing it out to Long Island, and uh, they threw me right to the wolves. They handed me a script. Here, read this. Make 300 phone calls. Let me know how you do. Mm. I'm like, what? Just like those scenes in Boiler Room, right? It was it that that's why when that movie came out. I was like, wow, that truly is my life. Even the Ben Affleck speech, because I was wearing a suit from my bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wearing the oldest suit from Alexander's with the awful tie that I bought on the street for like two bucks. And this guy's looking at me, he's like, dude, don't come back in that suit. I'm like, uh, it's kind of the only suit I wear. And then I was like, and I was a wise guy. I'm like, oh, am I going to see anybody that knows that I'm not wearing a good suit? And then he's like, 
if you don't buy a new suit, don't come back. So there I was going to leading mail, spending like $800 on suits. <laughs> oh, man. You know, that Ben Affleck speech in that movie is is got to be one of the top five all-time scenes in any Wall Street-related movie. Absolutely. And it was real because I sat through that speech. And when they asked me for money, I was like, wait a minute, am I supposed to get paid? Oh, no, you got to pay for your uh, your books and your education. I'm like, I got $4 to my name. I'm wearing a suit from 1983 here. Come on. <laughs> you are required to work your fucking ass off at this firm. We want winners here, not pikers. A piker walks at the bell. Piker asks how much vacation time you get in the first year. Vacation time. People come and work at this firm for one reason, to become filthy rich. That's it. We're not here to make friends. We're not saving the fucking manatees here, guys. You want vacation time? Go teach third grade public school. So, so Kenny, I had no idea, and it, it totally makes sense to me, but I had no idea that you uh, were involved in stand-up comedy and, and worked in a television business uh, back in the day. I mean, that's awesome stuff, and that's a, kind of a unique background um, that that is pretty unusual for, for traders who do what we do. Uh, and, and I got to tell you, man, I mean, you're kind of tugging at my heartstrings a little bit because I don't know if you know this about me, but uh, back when I lived in Chicago, I, uh, I spent a year at Second City uh, huh? in their training program. I wasn't a performer on the stage, but, uh, but I did get to perform on the main stage a few times, um, nice. as, as part of our class in front of a live audience. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, that was, um, you know, I had, I never had any dreams of being, uh, an actor or a comedian or stand up or any of that. It was just kind of the fact that I lived a block away from the theater. And I thought that seemed like a cool way to spend a Wednesday night every week. And, um, man, it was the best some of the best times I've ever had in my life, man, that, that full year of weekly classes and performances and, and the people I met, uh, was just so, so much fun. And, uh, man, I, I, so I, I have a special place in my heart for people who do that kind of stuff. And I, I kind of, I understand a little bit about the life that the comedians go through because, you know, while I wasn't interested in pursuing it as a career, I certainly hung out with lots of people who did, uh, want to make a career out of it. And, uh, uh, and, and watch the, the, the processes that they went through. And it's, it's fascinating stuff. And, you know, I've, I've always thought, uh, as I've, you know, I've been trading now for 18 years and I really feel like there's a strong correlation between, between the life of a stand-up comedian or, or, an, uh, uh, improviser, just like there is in trading. I mean, I feel like that it's the, it's such an individual, experience right i mean you're, you're you're kind of fighting your own demons to, to succeed and you're kind of working on your own processes and and yes i know improvising is kind of you know quote unquote a team sport but in the world of comedy uh you know you really gotta bang your head against the wall a lot of times do a lot of dead ends uh and really work your way up and i feel there's so many corollaries between that and trading i'm curious to know if, if, if you've seen anything like that in, in your in your travels well yeah, and that's awesome. I didn't know that about you either. That's great. I mean, I, I've, I, I'm still, you know, pursuing that. You know, as we speak, I'm going back. I've been going back on stage lately, you know, just to get uh, get a feel for what people think are fu is funny now because I'm a whole different person. Used to be just, <laughs> you know, just, just, just getting drunk and fart jokes for a while. Now it's more about how my my kids are assholes. You know, more, <laughs> I, I'm like the weird. Somebody's describing. He's like, dude, you're like the weird Louis C.K. I'm like. I'll take that. <laughs> I, will, I will take the weird Louis C.K. any day. Yeah. And I, that's kind of what I'm going for. You know, I tell, you know, I do a lot of silly voices and I can do impersonations, but I tell a lot of stories about, you know, all the stuff about me being like this sort of like a, I'm a very, and you know, I'm a, I'm a very social guy, but I'm also reclusive because, you know, I run this chat room and I'm, I'm trading from home and kind of going stir crazy from time to time. So yeah, the the stand-up comedy for me is like you know to to release everything. Speaking to my kids, hi, how are you? <laughs> A stand-up comic, you are on your own, and you you need to perform to make money. As a trader, you need to perform to make money. So it is basically the same thing. And I think the only thing more frightening than having your money at risk and trading is stand-up comedy because once you're out there. You've got 10 seconds to win these people over or they don't like you. You know, if your first, you know, 10, 30 seconds, you don't get them. A lot of times you're not going to get them. And then sometimes 
the jokes that I would tell that would work normally, if I lost the audience in that first minute, even the ones that I knew were killers, they didn't even want to hear it. They're like, oh, I don't like this guy. <laughs> and it's, it, 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 it's, a, it's a tough racket. And just like traders, most traders will get hammered when they, when they first get started and they're learning the ropes. You know, it's it, it really the correlation is really, you know, it's, it's there, you know, especially just that whole idea of you being out there in the spotlight. It's you and there's nobody else to blame and there's nothing else, you know, you can do except be yourself and hope for the best. You know what? That's an amazing correlation that you just pointed out. Uh, the fact that you could be a stand up comedy, a comedian on stage telling a joke that has worked 50 times in 50 different rooms. But this night with this audience, for whatever reason, the joke just fell flat and your delivery was the same. Your setup was the same. The punchline was delivered the same, but it just didn't resonate. And you know what? Traders can totally relate to that, right? I mean, we have setups that we use over and over again that we rely on, that we know more often than not they work. But then some days, for some reason, the market just doesn't agree with what you're doing and you're not going to make money and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. Yeah, it, it's exactly right. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. So, oh, yeah. man, you know, we could probably talk for, for three hours about comedy. Should probably, in the interest of our listeners, maybe <laughs> steer away from that for a little while. You were at a brokerage firm on Long Island. I mean, living, practically living the the boiler room and Wolf of Wall Street story, <laughs> right? With Absolutely. those with those with those firms. So, how long were you there, and and what caused you, or what what was the impetus that got you to to make the leap into trading? All right. Uh... <laughs> This is a good. This is a good one. Uh, well, first, the first firm I went to, you know, I walked in. The guy made fun of my suit, hands me a script, and tells me to get on the phone. And I'm calling as uh, Joe Balisario. Hey, how you doing? This is Joe Balisario from uh, I forgot the name of the company. Yeah, I got this. Uh, I'm, you know, first you'd ask me if they're interested in the stocks, and like, well, let me tell you something about what I got. And then if they were interested, then you'd hand the phone to the uh, the the real broker because I was just a you know the the, the opening guy, and. This firm was basically, it was, uh, there was two, two main tables. There was a bunch of uh, uh, Russian guys and then a bunch of, uh, it was like a, a mixed, it really wasn't, it was, it was like an odd, it was like run by a Jewish guy, but there were no Jews there. It was uh, lots of Russians talking about IPO. No, this is IPO, IPO, IPO. That's all I ever heard. I'm like, what's up? What, what are they saying? IPO. This is very good. No, this is IPO, IPO. <laughs> And so I was like, what the hell is an IPO? I want in on this. They're screaming, IPO, IPO. They're all up and, and yelling and screaming, but I couldn't hang out with them. And then you had these, you know, other, these other knuckleheads, a bunch of tough guys, uh, kind of like, you know, that, that, that either, they were like, I don't know, wannabe gangsters with those weird collars. They were really serious, and I just didn't fit in with them right away, kind of like I was intimidated by them. So I didn't even know where to sit. And um, a couple of days in, I mean, this only lasted for maybe two weeks, one of the Italian guys comes up to me, he says, you look real uncomfortable, bro. He's like, let me tell you what we're about to do. He's like, we're opening up our own firm on Wall Street. You're going to take your Series 7. We're going to be doing IPOs. And once again, I'm like, what the hell's an IPO? <laughs> he's like, we're going to, he's got, you're going to, I was like, Series 7, what's that? You know, because I, I just walked in, the guy handed me a script. That's what I thought being a stockbroker was all about. It's <laughs> like, this can't be right. So he's, the next thing you know, he's like, yo. If you, if I would do me, do me a favor, I was like, you don't look comfortable here. Tell him you don't, you're not into this. I'm going to give you a call in a couple of weeks. Next thing you know, this guy calls me up and he brings me to his, you know, you got this beautiful office space right on, uh, um, right off Broadway, you know, down the block from Wall Street, windows everywhere, gorgeous place. And um, he's like, all right, listen, we're going to do it the right way. Once again, I got the Ben Affleck speech from somebody else, which is I'm like, do you guys practice this speech? What's happening here? I got the same speech from some guy three weeks ago. And um, next thing you know, I'm taking the Series 7, and I'm paranoid as shit because now I'm taking it. You now I'm like, wow, I'm taking a test. I'm going to be registered. I sat in my room. And by the way, this was the first time I stopped smoking weed. <laughs> <laughs> for 30 days to clean myself up. I wanted to like, that's how serious I took it at that point. As I, I had been smoking my whole, you know, college, into college and every day. And I was like, all right, let me clean up for this. I took the test. I got a 96 on the series seven. Boom. I walk in, I'm all proud. You know what this guy says to me? He's like, yeah, guys like you don't really make it in this industry. So he, he wanted you to get a uh, bare minimum 71 just to yeah. barely pass. 
Yeah. And I was like, I, what? I was like, not, not even a, at a boy. They, they, they were laughing at me. They were laughing at me. You're, you're, you're a nerd. You're not going to make it. Yeah. And he's, that, pro- he's probably looking at you going, okay, so this guy's just going to follow all the rules. Screw him. Right. Right. Which was what got me out of the industry and in the first, and got me out of the brokerage world because yeah, we were doing IPOs and you know, it was a, you know, I actually had my name. I was calling as Kenny Glick and I can open up my own accounts. But the best part about it was we'd have these dog and pony shows where they bring a, you know, I remember there was a retractable syringe for dentists and in the tip of the syringe, you had the Novocaine. So, and the dentist was there, you had doctors there, you had these, you know, investment bankers there talking about how awesome this product was. We're going to bring the IPO out at six. It's going to be a blockbuster. And to me, it sounded great. I was like, oh, retractable syringe. You don't have to use the waste management companies. You could uh, throw it in the regular garbage. Novocaine right on the tip and it retracts. This is awesome. So then after the dog and pony show and they're talking about, you know, uh, you know, how much money we're going to make on this stock and how much, uh, you know, how hyped we should be about selling it. I get called over by that guy, my manager. He says, yeah, by the way, I know you and your dad like to trade also because I had, you know, I had opened up an account as soon as I got there. I had some uh, slot machine company that I loved, IGT. Anyway, he, um, he tells me, whatever you do, don't ever put your friends and your family into these stocks. <laughs> I was like, you just told me the stock's going from six to 100. I, I, I was like, I was about to buy my dad 10,000 shares. Well, that's a don't huge put, red flag right there. Right. Don't ever put your friends and family into the stocks. I was like, you just told me this is going to be a blockbuster. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll listen to you because I got no other choice. And next thing you know, we're doing this IPO. It comes out at six. It's at seven. Then next thing you know, it's at eight. And I got a, you know, I, I, I was doing pretty well with it. I got some guys into it. I got a couple of guys that, you know, wanted to take some quick profit. So I go into the office. I'm like, yeah, my guy wants to sell here at 750. He's like, no, nah, you can't sell. I'm like, what? He's like, you got to find someone to buy from your client. I'm like, can't you just hit the button and sell it to the market? Because I was, you know, again, I was still all new to this. I'm like, I started learning what market makers were. Turns out we were the only market maker. We had the entire float of the stock under our control. So if you wanted to sell the stock to the market, and, and these were small cap stocks. So if you looked in the New York Times, they would always print the stock at the ask price at the end of the day, thinking that you were doing good. But it was seven fifty on the offer, four dollars on the bid, oh, man. and one and one market maker. And if you wanted to sell it, they wouldn't even give you the four dollars. So I had to legitimately call, hey, uh, Mr. Jones. Yeah, listen, I got this great IPO I got here. It's seven fifty on the bid, but I can lock you in on a price here at seven dollars because my market makers working the order right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is just criminal. And I was like. The more I learned, and then the guy just kept calling me, then my new nickname was Mushroom. And I'm like, why do they keep calling me Mushroom? For months, months, nobody wanted to tell me why they call me Mushroom, Mushroom, Mushroom. I thought, because I like to, you know, I used to tell stories about, you know, you know, going to, ra- going to raves and partying. But <laughs> one guy finally calls me, I was like, dude, you know why they call you Mushroom? Because they keep you in the dark and they feed you shit. Oh. And I'm like, uh, okay, so what are you saying? <laughs> You're saying this is all just one criminal operation here, aren't you? And the guy just walked away. And finally, when it dawned on me, we were selling some company, and I love the name of this one, Consolidated Incorporated Technology Systems. And that's not made up. Consolidated Incorporated Technology Systems. Wow. I was like, what? I was like, what do they do? Oh, they do a bunch of stuff. They're in Colorado somewhere. Next thing you know, you know, we're pitching this stock and, you know, whatever. And I hear them answering the phones in another room as consolidated technologies. Oh, man. I thought the company was in Colorado. Shut up. Get out of this room. (laughs) Wow. This is, I mean, you and I both have a common friend, Josh Brown. Everybody knows Josh Brown, the reform broker. He wrote a book about all this stuff. And and man, I mean, you lived lived these crazy stories that, that Josh wrote about in his book. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then when I started learning about technical analysis, you know, we had a couple of IPOs that they would, you know, hold the bid on to make their clients feel a little bit better. And then, you know, it started coming in. And, you know, at one point I was like, you know, if this breaks 725, it's kind of like the, you know, 30 day resist uh, support here. If it breaks, it's probably going to go cratering down to six. 
And this was another favorite line that they used to throw in my face. Ken, we don't care what you think you know. You just do what we tell you to do. And I raised, and then and, and, it's, and the guy said, if you ever raise your hand at a meeting talking about what you think you know on a chart, you're fired. And I was like, where am I right now? Not to mention one day I walked in with some hair on my face. The guy walked by me, flicked the credit card across my face and asked me if I shaved. And I was like, no, I didn't shave this morning. He's like, everybody shaves here every day. So I said, what if I want to embrace my Judaism and grow a beard? You'd be fired. <laughs> wow. Where the fuck am I? <laughs> How many people worked at this firm? They had to be a good, you know, 100, 150 people there. Oh, wow. That's big. Yeah, yeah. And then what? And then I think when the law was on to them, all they would do is we is one day another 100 brokers showed up. We were all standing around and we met uh, like it was like Kenny meet Sean. Sean, meet Kenny. You take his book. He's going to take yours. You call his clients, tell him that you're, he, he's fired. And you call Sean's clients and tell him he's fired. And you switch books. And the name of the company is now Hibbert Brown. Wow. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and so, I was like, okay. After And then the final straw was when I, I walked in there. And I was like, you know, I finally got a guy. You know, he had $100,000. And I was opening up accounts with you know, 400 shares of a $6 stock. You know, I, this guy was like, yeah, dude, that sounds great. I'll buy 10,000 shares. So I really wanted to make this guy some money. And, um, you know, I, I, I went in there and I was like, listen, you got to let this guy out of some stock. I don't have anybody that wants to buy from him. It was called crossing the books. You know, you had, you had to cross it from one account to the other. And I was like, can't you let this guy out? And they were like, you know the rules. You've got to sell it to somebody else. And uh, I was like, listen, He's not going to stand for that. This guy knows a little bit about what's going on. He's like, well, you tell him what's going on. And I was like, all right. And I was like, and then it almost got to the point where, you know, I was like, you know, what if he calls the SEC? And as soon as I mentioned SEC, that was it. <laughs> it. He's like, well, you're going to tell your client to call the SEC? He's like, you want, you, want, you want real trouble? I'm like, did you just threaten me? I was like, where am I? Is this, this is like Nazi Germany right here. I mean, this is crazy. And, and that was it. And then I, I just, you know, within, within a week after getting pseudo threatened to get beat up to try to sell a client's stock, I was, you know, I told my client, I was, listen, call the company, call the SEC, tell them, what, uh, tell them that you're trying to sell a stock and the company's not letting you sell. And, you know, and I never came back. And then I started calling all my clients because I didn't want to, you know, leave without them knowing what was going on. And every client I called, they said, oh yeah, they called us already. They told you that, they told us that you were fired, you were doing some criminal activity. Oh like, man. Yeah, yeah, and I was like, oh, really? I was like, you know what? I, I, had, no, I had no way to fight it. Sure. And that was it, I just walked away. And I guess about three months later, I'm at a Pearl Jam concert. I think it was one of those Lollapaloozas or something like that. And I saw an old fraternity brother of mine I told him my plight. He's like, well, why don't you trade your own account? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, we, 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 we trade our own money now. If you think you know what you're doing, why don't you just trade your own money or get some of your big clients and trade their money? It's called SOS. And I was like, what's that? And next thing you know, I'm a SOS bandit. And then and that's how the story, the story of my psychopathic career into trading began. This had to be around what, 1997, 1998? Yeah, 97, yep. You know, that book that Harvey wrote, you know, the, my fraternity brother was friends with Harvey Halkin, who trained him. And I just, you know, I sat behind these two guys and I just asked them a bunch of questions like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And they were really nice, you know, my fraternity brother and his partner. They're like, well, if this breaks here, this should happen. If this happens here, this should happen. But what we were really doing was the SO system. And there was a, there was a system called SelectNet. You remember that? Oh, yeah. It was so flawed in the in the software that there would be these glitches where you were able to make money for nothing. It was incredible. You know, there would be sticky quotes. You don't get those anymore. But, you know, for instance, the stock's 2250 on the offer. Next thing you know, it's 2275 bid and the 2250 guy was stuck. It wasn't just a technical glitch. You could continuously hit the guy at 2250 and immediately just, you know, you would hit the F12 and then you'd hit the F1 and keep making quarters until the guy moved away. 
And then he would then finally, you know, if it was Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch or, or Morgan Stanley, they'd call. Yeah, I just got an order done on eBay, 8,000 shares a quarter away from the market. I'd like to break it. And we would laugh. We were like, um, well, hang on a second. And we come back. Yeah, there's a note on the on the trader's desk. It said made days pay. I don't know what that means, but take care. <laughs> well, you know, we, we should uh, offer an explanation here to some people about uh, the, this exploit that was going on in the late 90s uh, with the SO system. So the SOs, uh, that's an acronym that stands for small order execution system. What uh, was commonplace back then is that uh, if you were to put a, place a SOs order up to 1,000 shares, uh, whoever was uh, on the bidder offer, like if you're buying and you hit a, a SOS market buy, uh, that market maker was obligated uh, to fill your order. I mean, it would be it would be automatic. It was supposed to be automatic, and you'd get filled no matter what. And now the 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 arbitrage that was available, as you talked about with SelectNet, was back then the level two on Nasdaq didn't look like the way it looks today for active traders. Uh, basically, it was every market maker, every firm. Uh, was listed. So you would see Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, or whatever, all, all the firms, right? And so the arbitrage that you're talking about would be if Goldman Sachs, for instance, was sitting on the offer, offering stock at, say, 55 bucks even, uh, and all of a sudden a bid comes in uh, higher than 55, say 55, 25, uh, you back then it was in fractions, right? So 50 and a quarter, right. uh, you could, uh, sell via select net, which select net meant if you preferenced a market maker, say Merrill Lynch, uh, for a thousand shares, if you hit them first, you were entitled to receive the, that fill. And then you would immediately, uh, place a SOS order against the offer, which was Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, offering a quarter below where Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch is bidding. Uh, and for you, that was an easy uh, risk-free quarter of a point on a thousand shares as 250 bucks without even breaking a sweat. Uh, right. And those opportunities for a brief period of time, I'd say what, like maybe two, three years um, before the market makers wised up to what was going on. That was a very, very lucrative trade for a lot of people who got in early on that, right? It was so great, Sean, that I hired two kids and I would call them fishermen. I was like, I just want you to sit here and if you see ever a bid higher than the offer price, nail it both at the same time and that's all I want you to do. They didn't even have a trade. You're like, well, is this really trading? I'm like, listen, just do it. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and then there was the select net, which, which was even more busted than... Um, was more busted up than so's select net was great because again you could blast right to the market maker that you wanted to to hit um and when we were trading in 1999 by 2000 there were stocks trading at 400 500 so you would just send you know and this is this was the crazy thing that this actually worked and my firm we, we almost got in trouble from you know the sec because we would just you know like i said i hired two kids to send erroneous orders after a while but so let's say on SelectNet, you got a stock trading, you know, it's got a two or three point spread because it's a $190 stock. And let's say it's bidding 190 and, or it's offered 190 and three eighths. You would offer out at like 190 or one, you would, sorry, I, I'm kind of messing the story up. <laughs> Basically, you would send the order, at, let's say if it was 187, you'd send the water order at 182 but a quarter higher, you know what I'm saying? So if it was 187.50, you'd 187.50, you'd send the order at 182.75. And if that market maker quickly saw the order and thought that two was a seven, he'd hit you thinking that you're making a mistake by bidding the stock up a quarter higher than the offer. Meanwhile, you're four, you're four and three quarters below the market and you get the print. Wow. And it was no law. So, you know, then the market makers started calling us, threatening, you know, to fight us legitimately. They were going to, you know, go out and we were going to go out in the street like the Wild West and battle it out. <laughs> and so, you know, they reported us and, we, you know, we got, we got calls and we kept saying, you know, oh, well, the trader just put the wrong, the wrong, the wrong, wrong price in. He's like, then how can you have 650 orders out? Oh, yeah, I don't know about that. I guess he must have 
leaned on the button a little bit too hard. Well, I don't understand what's what's wrong with putting out a bid below the market. I mean, why is that illegal? Right. It wasn't. It was their fault. So the funny thing is when you would get done, you would just immediately punch out of it and you know, you'd make four points on a thousand shares for doing absolutely nothing. Market maker would call, we'd we we you know, we'd bust their balls and like, dude, you thought a two was a seven, bro. It's not my fault. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so finally you know, when the SEC called us, you know, we told them we'd know we'd, we'd kind of cut it out, even though we brought it down to a smaller scale. But then they actually implemented a law to 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 stop us from doing this. The market maker then had a half an hour to report that trade as an erroneous trade. And we had to break the trade. So I bought my two guys stopwatches, like little little timers, like cooking timers. I was like, as soon as you get the trade, hit the watch. And I was like, if it's past a half an hour, tell the guy to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be sitting there counting the seconds down. Come on, baby. And the funny thing is, it was night trading, Morgan Stanley and, uh, you know, J- uh, some of the other smaller market makers that would always call and, like, get all bent out of shape. Goldman Sachs, whenever he made an erroneous trade, never called. Never. I guess he, they figured, all right, it's our bad. We thought a two was a seven. Let's, have, let's let this asshole make his extra four grand on us. They never called. It was night trading. Oh, we used to blast them all day. Night and, and, and uh, MSCO and MLCO. You remember the old box? Oh, yeah. That's Morgan yeah. Stanley and Merrill Lynch. I remember them. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's funny. This, this is the rare uh, story where Goldman Sachs comes out as the good guy. <laughs> yeah, they let us they let us keep some free money. Well, I remember, uh, you know, I too traded during that period of time. And uh, I remember that uh, Goldman Sachs, I mean, I'm sure this is still true today, but Goldman Sachs was always the axe, right? If Goldman, axe. Sa- if Goldman Sachs was on the bid, then the you, wanted, you wanted to be buying. <laughs> oh, my God, you know it. We had a stock, I remember if you remember, it was my favorite company. Uh, I think it was called Very Large something, six, VLSI. And there was a rumor that AMAT was taking them over. And the stock would do nothing all day. And then every day at around 3.30, boom, Goldman Sachs sitting on the bid. And all you would do is just blast the offer. Goldman Sachs would go high bid, and you'd sell it right back to Goldman Sachs. And we would do 10,000 share block, make an eighth of a point on it. It was like you knew if you didn't do any trades all day, you just waited for this VLSI because obviously you was accumulating it because this takeover rumor seemed to be legit, which it was. It did get eventually taken over by Applied Materials. And there was something to it. I got to tell you, for six months, I just sit there waiting. I was like, ah, I really didn't trade all day. I'll just wait for the VLSI Goldman Sachs axe to show up. And if he didn't show up, we didn't do the trade. But as soon as he jumped on the bid, and it's funny, not, not that many people remember the word axe. You know, we used to call it the axe or the hammer. Yeah. He's, the guy, he's the guy that's in charge of that, that stock that day. So when you saw Goldman Sachs go bid, follow the money, follow Goldman Sachs. And we would do what was called an offer swipe. We would hit every market maker all at once with thousand share orders and then just blast it right on SelectNet right back to Goldman Sachs. And it was it was fantastic. You know, you make an eighth of a point, sometimes a quarter, you know, but, you know, an eighth of a point on four or five thousand shares or ten thousand shares. That's a nice day's pay. Yeah. You know, Kenny, you and I both have been around the trading world long enough to cringe every time we hear the phrase. Well, this time is different. Right. But truly in the late 90s, during the height of the uh, the SOS uh, operating system, or I forget what you call it, but the SOS situation in SelectNet and NASDAQ. I mean, that truly was a unique time that is has never had never existed before and hasn't existed since since NASDAQ changed uh, the way they display orders. Right. Uh, That truly was a different time. And. I mean, there are so many stories uh, of of guys and girls, you know, with no market experience whatsoever coming off the street, just being taught how to press this buy button and hit this sell button when X, Y, Z happens and boom, you make money. Uh, I mean, it was literally that easy for a brief period of time, right? I mean, it, I would say the the uh, <laughs> the salad days for that trade probably what like 96 through 98 when that's when it was easy and then after that it, it kind of everyone piled in and it just became more real trading at that point but it truly was a different time then a little bit a little bit later than that actually when when it really became and the joke is that the postman was trading your septic tank guy was trading <laughs> my desk you know one guy was an accountant who became a trader 
But the guy next to me, he ran a kosher pizza place. He became a trader. The other guy used to work at a Nissan dealership. He became a trader. Uh, the guy next to him was, uh, you know, a landscaper. Uh, you know, he ran a landscape business. He became a trader. And that's it. The joke is is real. I mean, it really was a bunch of people who just thought, yeah, I'll put 25 grand in an account. Show me what button to press. Yeah. And it, it was it was really that easy for a while. But obviously, none of those guys made it. And the sick thing is a lot of those guys, I witnessed them blow up because sometimes when common sense, you know, during 1999, during that rally, you probably remember this. If a company announced a stock split, which shouldn't influence the stock. When Yahoo announced the stock split, the stock went up 40 points in the aftermarket. Oh, yeah. That stuff was manna from heaven for, for traders. I, rem I remember there were internet, back when the internet was you know, still very new, there were internet services that their whole business was predicting which stock was going to uh, announce a split next, and people would trade on that. Yep, yep. And I had a buddy that just, his, his common sense and what he thought he knew about the market, he's like, why should a stock split influence the stock price? If anything, it, it, it should be a, you know, a non-event. And he just blew himself up, shortened these stock split announcements. Ugh. And it just was just an awful thing to watch because he turned himself, he, you know, he turned, you know, I got to say 50 grand into got to be close to a million bucks in, a, in maybe about 18 months, you know, like we all did. Mm -hmm. And he gave it all back in gotta be two months oh, kenny Just. kenny you and i have both seen that story played out a lot <laughs> yeah. i mean i too uh i was trading in an office in tampa florida of all places during this time from from 98 to 02 and uh i could tell you that at the height of the uh when we when our when everybody in our office was making the most money it was actually on the downside of the dot-com right of the explosion when when the market was going down uh, nice. we were killing it on the short side and so in the height, I'd say in early 2001, we had 40 guys in our office and all guys exactly like what you just described. You know, this guy ran a, a restaurant and this guy was a milkman and this guy was, you know, whatever. And we had guys in that office. Some were as young as 21 years old. We had some guys who were retirees, but everybody to a man was making crazy you know, money. I'm talking, you know, mid five figures a month. Uh, guy, 21 year old kids who were, you know, pulled down $4 million in 2001. I mean, it was insane. And I was in that office and, uh, you know, I was on the low, I, I made money too. And those are great years for me, but I was probably in the, you know, lower 40 percentile of, of profits of, of all the guys in my office. Uh, right. But the funny thing is now, I don't know if it's funny, maybe it's not funny, but uh, fast forward to today, I mean, every single one of those guys long blew out of the business and I seem to be the only one left. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. I, it's not certainly it's not because I became rich trading, but uh, uh, maybe I'm just the dumb one who's, who hung around. But everyone else is gone there. They've all gotten out of the business long ago. Absolutely. I don't I, I only well, I'm not really friendly with the one guy. I think he's still a trader, but. Yeah, I mean, he had to sell his house. He had the sickest house I've ever seen. His like he had he had a living room that was immense, and then he had what he called the great room. <laughs> I was like, okay, his, <laughs> his great room was pretty much the size of my whole house. Wow, it was unbelievable. And then you know, you know, eight months later, he's like, yeah, I'm getting out of that house. I'm like, what happened? He's like, you know what happened? And I was like, wow, I thought you were you were the man. He's like, yeah, but I held a bunch of stuff and, you know, and long story short. And I see one of the other guys, the guy that was working at the Nissan dealership before he became a trader. He's right back at the Nissan dealership. Come, <laughs> He went full circle. You know, my, my story is kind of, you know, tragic also because I, I was kind of bent on shorting. And if you watch my early videos, there was, you know, a two year span where I just was fighting the world. I went from, you know, okay, I have something that works pretty well. I could grind out a living here. And I just got bent on trying to, you know, short the market again. I just kept getting hammered and hammered and hammered. And every time I bought a stock, that's when it would go down. If I covered my short, that's when it would crash. So I started making those silly videos on, on YouTube for a couple of years, you know, as that alternate personality. Because I didn't want to admit that it was me. <laughs> I was, you know, <laughs> Jefferson Krull. The website was called Suck My NASDAQ. <laughs> I remember I that. Just, I just couldn't get it right. And uh, and then, you know, finally I was like, you know, I do a lot of, you know, I do some seminars, you know, I do these meetup groups and I obviously run this chat room 
every day. And I say these, you know, the first thing I ask people is, if you have something that works 80% of the time, would you try it? And everybody says, yeah, sure, I'd try it. And then the next question I ask is, would it be the only thing you do? And nobody says yes, because everybody wants to be savvy. They want to know stochastics and Bollinger Bands and RSI and hanging dojis and all this stuff. I was like, but I just showed you the VWAP reversal. When it works, it works close to, you know, maybe more than 80% of the time. Why not just sit around and wait for those 80% opportunities so at least in your brain, trading is nerve-wracking enough. But if you have the idea that, hey, this works about 80% of the time, maybe I should only do that. And even then, the reason traders lose money is because they look, they, they, they think something works 80% of the time, but then one doesn't work and they don't want to take that loss. Well, you told me it works 80% of the time. Why should I get out? Because this is the 20%, you dummy. Get out. <laughs> because then you're, 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 you're one bad trade. You know, if you do two bad trades out of 10, those two bad trades turn out to be worse than the eight that you did right. Next thing you know, you turn a day trade into a swing trade, into an investment. You're getting 10 cues and 10, you know, you're sitting on conference calls on a stock that you don't even know what they do. Next thing you own it for six months and you turn a $200 loss into a five grand loss. That's how people lose money. It really always comes down to money management. Yeah. Everybody's got something that works pretty well, but it's really being stubborn about taking those losses, which gets you in trouble. And people just don't seem to realize you got to take losses. Nobody's right all the time. And well, you know what else is it? There's, you lost more than just that five grand on, on a trade that you should have only lost 200 on. In addition to that, you lost time and opportunity, right? Because instead of looking uh, at the market for new opportunities and trading new stocks and getting into something else, you're just stuck watching this trade that's just sucking all the life out of you. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, and that's the, you can't put a price on that, but it's a, definitely it's, it's a definitely immense cost to sit in a trade that's not working that you should have been out of long ago. Um, and yeah, <laughs> believe me, that's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. And uh, uh, but we have to do our best to minimize that uh, if we want to succeed long term. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then you're telling your friends about the company. Yeah, I love this stock. Uh, QLPR. What do they do? I'm not too sure, but I think it's a biotech stock. You should buy some. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it does, but I love it. <laughs> yeah. I'm in, uh, I'm in at 38. It's down to 11 now, but I'm thinking any day now, this is going to turn around. <laughs> All right. Well, Kenny, uh, you know, to, to the last thing I want to maybe uh, touch on a little bit is, you know, sounds like for a long time, you worked in a trading office with a lot of other traders, uh, and you probably uh, enjoyed some benefits as well as some distractions, uh, you know, whatever. But now, uh, you know, you're a, a work from home trader. Uh, what caused you to make that transition? And, and, you know, what are the benefits for that? Or what are the cons to that? Well, a lot of people think if you're around other traders, you're going to get ideas. Absolutely bullshit. Traders are very in their own thing. Nobody wants to talk while they're trading. I, I still hear this to this day. You know, if you're in a an environment where there's other traders, you'll you'll share ideas. It, it's really not like that. It's a battlefield. And you know, I was paying. You know, when I worked at a firm, it was when I had my own little desk that I was running. You know, like those two knuckleheads that I hired to look. You know, try to find some uh, you know glitches in the system. And then to me, it became a distraction. The only reason I liked going into the city. Is because I was making some silly videos on YouTube already, and you know I found that why should I travel to the city? Out of you know, it's a big commute for me, and I was paying all this money, and then I and I was actually I had my own office for a while, and I was paying crazy rent. So why was I paying rent and 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 transportation costs, and you know wasting you know three four hours of my life on a bus where I could do this all from home with a you know with a microphone and a and a and a, and a computer. And I'm, I'm very happy about it. You know, I go a little stir crazy because I don't get out of the house too much. But, you know, I, 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 I stumble into the city once a week usually just to say hello to some old friends. But, you know, I think that if you learn how to trade, just, you know, again, chat rooms have been around forever and I've been running one forever. That's all you really need. You want some camaraderie? Hang out with me. You know, we, we just, you know, when there's nothing to do, we goof around. We talk about everything. We have a good time. And you know, keep it keep each other's uh, spirits up or whatnot. I'm, you know, obviously me being a stand-up comic, I'm telling jokes all day to my guys. And when a trade comes along, I'm like, all right, let's get into some. You know, we just 
you know, while we were sitting here, we just bought some Caesars, which just broke out, you know, CZR. And I just type it into my room. I tell listen, guys, if this thing breaks, you know, nine bucks, you're probably going to get a quick quarter out of it. And then there you go. Everybody just made 250 bucks on their thousand shares while I'm talking to you. It's fantastic. So <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, I, I plus, you know, I don't have to pay for lunch. And uh, I, I, I like living at home. Plus, you know, like you, we got kids now and, you know. My wife works three days a week, so now it's just a perfect scenario for me to sit at home and do this, you know, when everything is just, you know, a click away. You know, the Internet is lightning fast at your house now. It used to be you'd want to be in an office because they had some better systems. Right. You know, you had your T, whatever, the T, the T1 lines. The T1 line, yeah, that was the magic, the T1 line. Right. right, and that was really the reason you wanted to be in. You know, you had a better computer usually at your office, and you had the faster Internet. And yeah, it was nice talking to other traders, I guess. It wasn't like I was picking other people's brains for ideas because, you know, you're in your own zone. You're doing what you do. But, you know. My, my office had a free catered lunch every day, so that was a perk. Oh, man. I couldn't <laughs> even get a... Couldn't get a donut of the guys that ran my place. We, we had a free catered lunch. Uh, one of the guys, his mother ran a catering business, so they hired her, and she catered lunch every day, which was fantastic. And we wow. had, and we always had a. Uh, a full-sized uh, cooler, fully stocked with uh, any kind of soda you want, and and my my, uh, <laughs> I remember my uh, guilty pleasure was Yuhu. I don't even know if they sell Yuhu anymore. Of do, course. Do you remember that chocolate milk drink? They still sell okay. it. Okay. Well, we always had that on on hand, and I would go through Jesus. I'd go through five of those a trading day, and it was. <laughs> Luckily, I was in my mid twenties at the time, so my body could handle it. I can't imagine doing that now. <laughs> Right. Yeah. My God. It really wasn't milk. You never knew what Yoohoo was really. It was like <laughs> chocolate drink. <laughs> I like when something's called drink, like orange drink that we used to get in public school. Oh yeah. So what is it? It's not juice. It's just drink. Okay. All right. Well, Kenny, look, we've been talking for an hour now and I don't want to take up your whole day. I know uh, we're, we're in the middle of the trading day right now, but uh, uh, if you could leave traders with uh, with one glorious Tip, uh, tidbit of advice, uh, what do you got for us? It's really the same thing I tell everybody is try to find that one or two things that work for you and try to stick to it. Because if you find that works, the hardest part is, oh, and again, the hardest part, you know, it's just like blackjack. You're, you're, you're seeing your friend play at the table. You want to sit next to him and play also, obviously. You're in the casino. The hardest part about trading is just sitting here and you want to trade because that's what you do. The hardest part is sticking to those two or three things that you know has worked for you over an extended period of time and just waiting for those trades. And always remember, when they're not going your way, take the quick loss. And here's a word of advice which a friend of mine back in, you know, in, in 1999 told me when a trade was going against me. He'd say, would you buy more here? If the answer is no, dump it. And that's what I do now. If you're feeling uncomfortable and you're like, oh, man, why am I in this? Dump it. Rip the Band-Aid off. Move on. It's just one trade. You'll have another day, another trade. Move on. Don't let that one trade ruin your day, your week, or your month. So I don't know if that was one thing, but you know, if you want to take one thing away from that, if you're in a losing position – and you wouldn't add to it, get out. Boom. That's perfect, man. Well, hey, look, Kenny, great chatting with you, man. You're, you're, you too, I, bro. I, I always love hanging out with you when I'm in New York City, and uh, I'll be back again in a few months. I hope to see you again soon. Um, and for anybody who wants to follow you on StockTwits or Twitter, your handle is at HitTheBidRadio, uh, and people can uh, hit you up there. And if they want to learn about your chat room, uh, they, could, they could ping you there, and I'm sure uh, you'll, you'll give them all the info. Yeah, man. Or, you know, just email me. I'm old. I'm so old school. I have an AOL account. Kenny Glick at AOL.com. Don't mock me. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny, awesome chat with you, buddy. Thanks for doing this. You too, bro. It's been awesome. This has been the Must Follow podcast hosted by Sean McLaughlin, a.k.a. Chicago Sean. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud. And please give us a review. Let us know what you thought and let us know who you'd like to hear in the future. Thanks for listening.